Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 24. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And uh, we got some, some good stuff in the works. We have, actually have an absurd amount of stuff in the works. Uh, it is Most kind of, of it absurd. we won't even bother you with. We spent a good chunk of time yesterday trying to figure out <laughs> our <Yeah>. year. Planning <laughs> it out. We have so many projects, it's nuts. Um, but... Uh, we just got in stock um, the the foundations instructional video that we put out a few years ago. Um, we ran out of the DVDs of that a while back. Yeah. Um, and we thought that's fine. We'll just offer the streaming version. Um, however, every week we're getting emails of people asking for that DVD, and so um, we finally said, okay, fine. We'll order yeah. some DVDs. We'll do more. Um, so we got uh, a good stock in in our store again. Um, so if you're looking for the DVD of our foundations video, uh, that's in our store. It's basically, it's like, it sounds like it's the foundational aspects of woodworking. And so, it's, you know, it's looking at some sharpening and some basic, uh, stock prep type stuff. Um, and it's, so it's basically, if you're kind of new to hand tool woodworking, here's how you tackle the basic joinery and sharpening and et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a really good, I mean, foundation, not to make a pun because that's not funny at all but no it just means it's a good it is intended as a foundational look (laughs) at these things so yeah um yeah we've had a lot of requests and it's it's good to have that back in um speaking of videos we're starting something interesting Mm -hmm. uh we actually just began today we just finished uh we're sitting in the same spot we are sitting in the same spot (laughs) um as we have um, moved away from social media. We're putting a lot more focus into things like our blog and our uh, our email list, yep. our email newsletter. And uh, for the email newsletter and for it alone, nowhere else <laughs> will it be found. Uh, we're starting a, a short video series. Yep. And uh, not to give away too much of what that's about, but we will be uh, sitting where we're sitting right now on these videos uh, discussing um, books or excerpts or other things. Life that, and craft. Yeah. And we're, we're calling it our M&T Table Talk series yeah. where we just sit around the table and we just chat. Because to be totally honest, most work days... That kind of defines what we do. <laughs> we, we philosophize and we talk about all these different things. And have you read this? And did you see so-and-so said? And well, what is the the etymological root of that yeah why it is that you know so uh so much of what we're doing is research and uh you know cultivating our curiosity and so these videos are sort of a, a snapshot into what that's like um so we'll be sharing those videos if you're on our email list uh you will see one uh there'll be uh, hopefully a pretty regular feature of the email list yeah uh, if you're not on the email list you will not see the video so you can uh subscribe to our mailing list on our website um, so yeah, we got that going on. That was mm-hmm. fun. Mike, yeah. Mike is editing that now. Um, but we also just finished, we put the last picture in the design this morning for issue yeah. 10. Issue 10. Uh, and that's, we're very excited about it. Um, I've been, uh, honing some design, uh, features, some ways to lay things out and present it in a more compelling way. And so we're always trying to improve each aspect of, of this publication. Um, so we're both just like, yeah, 
pumped super pumped about this issue we like to think that each issue will be the next best one and i think this one (laughs) yeah well this might actually be the best one when we start going backwards yeah we'll be like well uh that last issue wasn't so good no i mean we yeah we have issue 11 booked out we're filling up 12 right now i mean we have so much awesome stuff in the pipeline it's it's a little overwhelming actually folks there is no end to the rabbit holes you can go down when pursuing what was it the other day we i just started looking at something just randomly some some thing that came up in a conversation or something started sabbat making yeah yeah shoes sabbat making shoes and and (laughs) you just can disappear in a rabbit hole and have an endless supply of you know creative material or things to research or things to study and yeah there's no end to it it's awesome it's really good so um, yeah, we're really, really pumped to get this in your hands. Uh, we are very confident that you will you will enjoy this issue. Yeah. Um, as issues go, as uh, most of you know, issue one sold out a long time ago. Issue two uh, faded away as well, yep. uh, off into the sunset. Issue three is coming down the pipeline. Yeah. We see the writing on the wall that issue three uh, is going to be selling out gone yep for uh i don't know i i couldn't even guess what a timeline is but in the not too distant future issue three yep. will no longer be in the store um yeah we'll be uh talking about it on our blog a little bit and um you know probably sharing some excerpts from it and stuff and as we you know sort out the end of this we will be announcing how many we have left exactly and you know you got to get yourself together to order it now or never kind of thing. Right. Um, but that's just the, the nature of these these things. Yeah, we, um, we had said, you know, the goal was to have each issue in stock for a few years mm-hmm. anyway. And so issue three is coming to the end of its lifespan. Um, but something that we've always talked about, uh, doing something special for 10 issues. Yeah, this is... 10 this is big this is like 10 is a nice is you know big. round our whole system of um numbers is based around the number 10 <laughs> and we have 10 fingers and 10 toes right and now we have 10 issues 10 of issues of the magazine we'd always wanted to do something special and um with that in mind years ago when issue one was almost gone mm-hmm. we squirreled away a few copies of one yep. and we squirreled away a few copies of two and obviously, we're squirreling away some of three because we always had this vision of a an issues one to ten boxed set. Yep. Uh, and so we're we're going to be starting to work on that. Yeah, I um, think what, next week we're talking about getting things set up. We've made some prototypes. Yep. Of the boxes. So we'll these be... are handmade dovetailed uh, wooden boxes. Yep. So we yeah we worked out the kinks of our design and we've been refining the process and it's it's going to be a yeah. lot of work uh, yeah. frankly but we're we think it's a good thing to do to, to kind of celebrate ten issues so we will definitely be talking more about that in, in the coming weeks uh, especially but in the coming you know month or so um, we will be sharing about that and on our blog so stay tuned for that you'll see these these boxed sets released i obviously a very finite uh, amount right. of them are available very, we're not it'll making a be million of these pretty things. limited number but again 
something we always talked about doing, uh, and we're super excited to get to this point. Yeah. So um, we thought, since we're so fresh into the Issue 10 territory, we just finished it. Uh, actually, all we have left as of this recording is copy reading, mm-hmm. where we read aloud and we make sure every single as and the and everything is yeah. perfectly placed. Um, so we'll be doing that after this recording tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but besides that, this one's ready for the printer. Um, and it's we always talk about, you know, these, we never have a theme for the issue consciously. Right. Um, but as we edit the material and we put it together, more often than not, some thread starts emerging or a few threads start emerging that we realize so many of our authors were touching on this aspect or that aspect of, uh, you know, woodworking. And so uh, this was no exception. Very strongly, we saw several articles focused on our relationship to our tools and how they affect us and how um, different tools uh, influence us in different ways. And this was coming up a lot, actually. Um, And so we wanted to be able to highlight that with this particular episode of the podcast, talk about how uh, several of these articles are really focusing on that unofficial, yeah. but blatant theme, yeah. apparently. It's, it's <clears throat> funny how that always happens. Um, you know, we don't give any indication to our authors as to uh, a theme, or we don't have one in mind, but it always yep. uh, develops um, just naturally. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing to see. You know, we have our stacks of issues here that we ship out, and uh, each issue we can look at and just it kind of know what the theme is of that issue, what, um, you know, we just always look back and remember, oh, yeah, that's that's the axe issue, right, <laughs> issue four. Um, but it always comes together like that, and it's it's a, a neat thing to see. Um, so your article kind of yeah. is right up there at the top of the list of, of setting setting this theme for the issue. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so my article is called ready hands and it's a letter to my sons i actually wanted to write um this letter to my three boys um and so that's the way i framed the article starts dear sons and and it's talking to them directly um because what i wanted to do with it was to explore the theme of this exactly this the way our tools influence us um there was a a media critic or a technology critic um named uh, John Culkin, who said, we shape our tools, and thereafter, our tools shape us. And so that's a really good description of what yeah. I'm trying to look at with this article. The way that um, we we exist as makers in a sort of, sort of an ecological way. So, you know, like... Um, in in ecology you take you look at all the different species and the way that they interact and relate and if you introduce a new species it changes the dynamics there it changes the way things happen so when you introduce wolves Mm -hmm. into a new area or back into an area it changes the the number of species and the way they they uh they interact yeah so our tools in our in our our workshops in our lives even are like that so that when we bring stuff new technology or new tools into our lives it changes us changes the way we think and the way we work other things have to make room yeah so a good example is think of before a sawmill you had uh 
this you know handful of guys at a, at a pit saw doing all this work try telling them that sawmills would make no difference right try telling them that when if you were to mechanize this it wouldn't change anything at all right well, of course it would change everything that's why yeah. so many of them em- embraced it or why people started factories and do and um to start mechanizing things so it makes a big difference um, it makes it more productive and all that kind of stuff, but it also changes the way that the artisan relates to the work right. that is happening. So um, we see this all the way through. What I talk about in the article is how technology, the idea of technology is like it's outsourcing. The basic core idea of technology is outsourcing. Technology, um, it, the, the word technology is from the Greek techne. And it's ology, you know, is the, the the systematic study of something, right? Right. And so, uh, technology is the systematic treatment or study of art, craft, yeah. right? Of, of working, of making things. And so, it's not just so craft doesn't equal technology. Technology is the systematic approach to craftsmanship right if that makes sense it's kind of a reductionist perspective and it, and so it can be reductionistic right but it also can be really efficient too in factories um so it's it's a scientific it's like the um you know the scientific uh what do they call that in the factory production right yeah yeah where they're the T- tailorizing yeah it's tailorism whatever the scientific minimizing yeah. steps for each task exactly and... so you tell the worker move your hand in this way and then turn it that way because that's the most efficient way to produce this product yeah. well that may be more efficient that may mean that the the factory owner is spending less money to create any given item right however it definitely changes the way the artisan relates to his or her work so uh, in this article, I'm talking about um, that from a, a real small-scale personal level. For me, I wanted to build a firewood box for my family, for my personal use. And I started <clears throat> uh, planning this and putting this, this design together and realized that um, it was just going to be a nailed and rabbited pine firewood box, really straightforward project. But then I was thinking about the, the rabbit joint, and I realized that a huge percentage of the rabbit joint is the nailing. Yeah, that's it's the nail, like the strength of it. That's that is the joint. Yeah. Ascent, I mean, it means not all of it, but it's most of it. And I realized that's so interesting because as a woodworker who isn't a blacksmith, I I can't really make this joint on my own. Right. I can only. You do need the, a specialist. I need I need someone else who can make this thing. And so what I realized is, well, what if I figured out how to make this joint on my own what if i learned how to make nails so i made the nails right and uh so that was kind of my journey is it was what i wanted to describe to my boys was this this desire to go into a new territory a new craft that i hadn't really spent much time in before and so i was describing this you know this work of my hands that i knew i i read about and i studied i knew what had to happen to make a nail but my hands didn't know how to do right. it. And so <clears throat> it's that whole, I'm, I'm talking about that whole thing. And then after that, once I had the nails made and I struggled through them, I go to put this box together and the woodworking is a, a breeze. It's, it's something that I've done a whole bunch of times. And I think, well, this is so interesting because I've spent, you know, whatever, 15 years building furniture and I feel really comfortable with my tools now. 
And I just was out there swinging a hammer trying to make a nail and I was struggling. Right. And so I'm showing, I'm trying to show my boys in this letter that um, it's important to always be pushing out into the unknown because if you only stay where you're comfortable, you're never going to grow. And so there's a lot of value in that um, and doing that. And the people that I look up to the most are the most diversified, skilled people. They, you know, they start talking about political history and they start uh, making things with their hands and they start painting something. You're like, what? Yeah. What they, the they've world? been at that that starters level for so many different areas and yet yeah. they've persevered and struggled through. Yeah. And so I just, I, I explore that a little bit about how our relationship to our tools informs that process of not just becoming a more effective cog in the wheel, right. but actually um, using making and using creating as a way to improve your own individual abilities so you don't have to outsource uh the accuracy or outsource mm. the power or outsource something else that you can take a simple tool in your hand and make something with the the, the sources kind of within if that yeah. makes sense in source in source yeah um so that's what i was exploring of that and it was really it was one of the hardest things i've ever written most complicated because i was trying to take i'm drawing on uh, philosophers and um, uh, social historians and a lot of people I've been reading and these their, their books are really long and complicated they just can't seem to say anything simple <laughs> right so I'm tr I'm struggling to even understand what they're talking about and then I'm trying to take all of that juicy nugget of information and live it out right and write a letter to my young boys yeah to explain how to explain the benefits of this stuff how to, why it's good to work with your hands and engage with the real world instead of just depending on a device to, yeah. to lead you to the destination. So it was a real struggle to take the highest level of philosophy I've ever been exposed to and try to bring it down to, and boys, I tried to make a nail. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> what's so amazing about the, you know, these very, um, uh, like I'll say the, the focal practice of making something with your yeah. hands is that it does tie in so well to these much bigger and deeper questions that we have. Mm -hmm. And I think in your struggling through with that article, uh, you, you got it to a point where it just communicates that really well. Mm -hmm. Just the way, a way of contemplating what you're doing and, um, and seeing a greater value in something as simple as nailing together a box for firewood. There's so much more there than meets the eye. So yeah. uh, I really enjoyed that article. Cool. Yeah, we're, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear uh, reader feedback on that. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, if some people would say, I don't get it. I don't get what it's right. over my head or I don't get what you're referring to or dude, it's just a firewood box. <laughs> I don't know. Like, well, no, no, no it's, it's way, just way a... more than that. Come on. I don't know. It's a metaphysical exploration. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, Transcendental. So, but so we have like in this art, in this uh, issue, we have like this trying to take this philosophy kind of stuff and, and show the practicality of it. Yeah. And then in the other end of the the presentation spectrum, we have this super practical like let's take an old skill that not many people even know anymore how to do but appreciate and see it but then try to revive it and 
and show and teach how to do it. So Mike, you did that with your, your cattail. Yeah. Article. Which was a lot of fun. Uh, so a few years ago, you and I went down to, um, meet up with a gentleman named Bernard Zyke who teaches, uh, well, he not only teaches, he, he practices, uh, furniture restoration, seat weaving in all different mediums. You know, he does uh, cattail rush. He'll do uh, paper rush, probably, you know, not, not very happily, you know, about doing it. Uh, he does uh, chair caning and um, all the different uh, uses of fiber, basically, for weaving seats. And so we went down uh, for a day and learned from him uh, because both you and I have done a number of the pre-twisted or, or paper rush seats, you know, all yep. the kind of thing that you see basically from the 20th century. And we've done a lot of those and figured it out and can do it fairly efficiently and do a neat job of it. And and the pre-twisted seagrass too, which isn't right rush, but it's... It's a, uh, a step closer. It's some, a natural material. Yeah. Um, but we both really wanted to learn cattails, you know. Like legit... How, Go Rush out seats. to the pond and cut some cattails and make some seats out of it, just like they've been doing for a very long time. Um, so I start with a little bit of uh, background to the practice and uh, a few different historic examples of, uh, of the use of cattails in seats. And, and just like, why? Why would you use this, this, this grassy weed? Mm-hmm. Um, that is so prolific, right? It's everywhere. This this pond down below the shop, what do we figure? There's probably enough every season to do like a hundred chairs there. Yeah, and it's know, just a little pond. Yeah, I like that. Um, but it's it's a time-consuming process. And so I was always like, well, why would you do that? Why not just put a plank on it or something? You know, something quick. But the seat. The seat, yeah, yeah exactly. The seat of the chair. Why not a plank seat? But um, in looking at it, you know, I realized just the, this different perspective of having a natural material at hand that's ready to go. And uh, someone who was um, living in a way where they're, they're gathering or raising food for subsistence, they don't say no to um, a ready-made natural material that is very good at several specific things. And cattail is really good for this. And it's as I said, extremely prolific. Like you probably would have a hard time over harvesting this stuff. And I say that cautiously because I know people can pull off some pretty bad stuff. People are pretty amazing. They are at, at the way that they manage to over harvest. They take that as a challenge. Um, but anyway, cattails are in some ways they're aggressive and they can take over. So it's probably good for a, a little wetland or something to go in and, and cut some. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I go through harvesting and drying and preparing, and then uh, I found a, a little, a sweet little ladderback rocking chair at a little antique place locally uh, that had a, an old, um, you know, sturdy but not very pretty um, pre-twisted uh, rush seat. And so I show how to cut that out and remove it and take all the little nails out of the uh, the frame of the seat, and then uh, how to weave with cattails. Yeah. And it is it is such a fun process. Like I, um, I've really enjoyed getting better at it 
because at first when when you know just like it is anytime you're watching someone who's really skilled do something watching bernard do that and he was he would be doing things and we'd be standing there going wait what did you just do hold it do that again and you know whenever i was going back through some specific parts of the weave to write about it in you know a technical way kind of uh I was trying to remember exactly how Bernard did it so that I could convey it as clearly as possible. Yeah. And there were a couple places where I I like called you, Joshua, and I'm like, uh, what? This you, part do you have here. Any pictures of this stuff? Yeah, so yeah. uh that is a really good um really good reason for taking lots of photos when you're learning <laughs> something. Because you can go yeah. back through and go, Okay, oh yeah, that's how that's done. And then it's just as simple as anything. Yeah. But um, Bernard taught us a way of weaving that it's it's really neat because typically when we've done the pre-twisted rush, the way you square out the seat, because you know most chair seats are wider at the front than the back, is you nail the, the rush to one of the, the rails and you weave it around just the front and you nail it to the other rail. And then you nail another one and you do that until the, the front... It, uh, the gap in the front is as wide as the back rail. And then you start your weaving to all four corners. Well, Bernard taught us this way that you can only do with cattails that you uh, you twist additional leaves in to make up that difference. So it's still a single weave all the way around. And it's just really cool. And so I uh, spelled out the whole process from start and, to finish. And we before we went to Bernard's, um, we were doing... Uh, our own research trying to figure this out um and you know i've had the caner's handbook um and i've there are a few other books that have talked about some of it um and so i've seen rush done before but i there's nowhere that explains it this way yeah everybody tacks it on the side or ties it on or something and it's it's not the same thing at all yeah and that's the other thing that uh, another thing about the way we learned was so many people who do teach or that I've seen that, that continue to teach cattail seat weaving, they'll have you tying new leaves in. Bernard did not do that. And all the historic chairs that we've seen do it the same way Bernard did, which yep. is just to tuck the, the butt end of the leaf in and then bend the new twist over it to lock it in place. Yep. And that's a, it's it's much faster. Yeah, and there's exactly, it's much faster, way faster. And so you look under a historic seat, and there shouldn't be any knots there. No, there are, no there knots are never tied. knots in an old cattail seat. Yeah, and I, if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with weaving seats, you're probably like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like that, that doesn't. How can you not have any knots? Yeah. For a twisted cattail seat, but that is the case. Mm -hmm. um, so and what we wanted to do with this article too is, we've seen some material published about how to weave these seats. And you get like six pictures in maybe that many paragraphs. Right. And it's yep. like, basically just go around in a square and that's pretty much it. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? It's actually not just that simple, we found. Um, and so what we wanted to do was present the most thorough and explicit and clear and helpful uh, publishing of how to weave these seats that exists. I don't know of anything more uh, clear. So... Yeah, I, I really feel like this method should get, you know, just an explosive revival. Totally. It's fun. It's awesome. People are, you know, loving making the Greenwood chairs. They're super popular. And this, this 
a cattail seat is so beautiful, you know, especially when it's fresh, like the day <laughs> you've made it, it's this beautiful, like vivid green and that does fade. But in the first few days, I, it is, it is gorgeous. And so the one I did for the article, um, it still actually has maintained a pretty, pretty nice green color. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I love it. And I, I really think that, um, that there's enough information in this article that uh, anyone out there could could go through and work their way through and complete a seat on their own and then you know tell their friends about it yeah yeah i mean i you know mike's right about all the green chair making that's happening right now people are excited about it's people everybody's excited about riving out uh stock and, and making the chairs but um you know, a lot yeah. of people what do you are do just about the putting seat? the shaker tape on or something, which is yeah. fine. It's great. It looks nice. But this is just so cool to be able to just complete it, to just get to the end yeah. and say, so cattails. Um, and some people do the hickory bark seats and whatever, and that's a different tradition and, and awesome. Right. Really cool. Um, so stuff like hickory bark seats and cattail seats, we want to see uh, more widespread that people are just defaulting to that. Um, cause they're just too cool to yeah. pass out. You know, one of my, one of the points that I make about the cattail is that for every other seat style, you either need a manufactured product or you need to cut down a tree. And this is grown everywhere. I mean, um, you, you, you can't cut enough of this stuff. So, um, cattail, it's the rhythm, rhythm of weaving cattail rush seats. Yeah. Uh, I'm really excited that we put that together. It's yeah. a good resource. I remember years ago trying to uh, doing the fiber rush seats and wishing that there was a resource. Yeah, to, to do the to learn how to do the real legit stuff because the cattails are all over the place. You drive right past them and just, yeah. you think, if only I knew how to put that together. Yeah, that'd be cool. So. And just as an aside, but cattails are really cool plants. They're they're a great natural food source. There's all kinds of other uses for them. The uh, the cattail heads, which as as a kid I used to throw like grenades. You give them a little twist to kind of break it, and then you chuck them at your brother as hard as you can, and they yeah. just explode, right? That's a good use. That's a good solid that. use. <laughs> uh, but other things too. Uh, they're a really versatile plant. Um, it's you know kind of paralleled the the growth of human civilization, and lots of people have gotten a, a decent amount of food and fibers and. And obviously chair seats out mm-hmm. of the cattail. But yeah, we have quite a few other articles that we are just terribly excited about in this issue. The one that I uh, am thinking about right now is um, our friend Jeff Miller uh, has been playing around for the past few years with his recreation of David Pye's device, his mm-hmm his apparatus for carving bowls. Um, and it's called his fluting engine. And so it, it's like this, if, if you remember David Pye's work, um, he's talked about the workmanship of risk and the workmanship of certainty. Basically the distinction is how much is the tool guided by your hand versus a jig or a fence or something. And so this, this fluting engine is basically a lived out experiment playing on those ideas of risk and certainty. So it's this human-powered big jig that guides um, 
a, a fluting cut down into a bowl. And so it's kind of like carving down a little bit freehand. It's not indexed. When you turn the bowl, it's kind of it's freehand. You're kind of just lining it up by setting, eye. Setting the angle by eye. And then you use this thing to swing the cutter down into it. And so you, he ended up, Pi ended up making a bunch of really interesting bowls that kind of, from a distance, they seemed kind pretty regular. And then you got up close and you realized, no, wait, that's all cut by hand. Oh, interesting. What is this? Yeah. And so that was that was Pi's philosophy lived out. And so um, Jeff was really interested in that idea. And to his knowledge and to mine, I don't think, I'm not aware of anyone else on the planet who has recreated the fluting yeah. engine. Maybe there's someone, but yeah, I'm not either. I've never heard of that. Um, and so Jeff uh, decided to try to figure it out. And so he built this thing and has been making bowls with it. And it's just been uh, really fascinating to see that. And so he was basically, it's sort of, um, it's I guess it's kind of like experimental archaeology, even though right. it's not that old of a technology. He's he wants to understand what was <clears throat> what was going on in Pi's mind. Why was he doing this? And then he would just chase it out and make this thing and try making bowls and go, huh? Oh yeah, that sounds like his philosophy. Yeah. That's and he just discovered quickly all the quirks with the machine, um, and the fact that Pi intentionally engineered those bits of risk into it. Like yeah. he could have indexed it in a specific way to make it completely precise every time but he wanted to leave these aspects of of the freehand nature to it yeah and uh yeah it is a really fun article and you know you and i have compared side by side and in the article it does it too the, the pictures of pi's fluting engine and and jeff's fluting engine and we're going okay so what does that do now what let's look at this picture from the back so that okay that's the up and down adjustment and we're trying to visualize all the geometry going on here and it is so complex it's a funky thing it's amazing <laughs> but the bowls that that come out of it when the when the device is all dialed in and when the artisan is is working with the device in such a way that uh it, it just comes together and it can create these beautiful bowls and it can also create apparently just disasters so <laughs> well and the thing that's interesting about it too is because so much of this machine this device is not indexed and not um there are no uh, fixed points that you can register mm. you can't you can't predict the what the bowl will look like you, yeah you and can't then you say, can't I'm make, make another one yeah because you it there's no happen. way it's impossible so that's what's so funky about it is it's it's like a machine but, but it's not, not. <laughs> It's yeah. totally crazy. Yeah, um, you wouldn't want an assembly line with these things. No, no, that would be a failed, failed project. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, the the um, one of the the lines in Jeff's article, which became the title, is uh, he described this using this machine as an exercise in precision and randomness. Yeah. <laughs> which that is just sums so, it up. So exactly what it it looks like. It's just a uh, head scratching thing. You know. It's wonderful. Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, another article which I really enjoyed seeing com coming together, and it, it is, um, I would say, unlike anything else really that we've published before. Um, a little backstory to it is a couple years ago when the uh, Charpentiers Sans Frontiers came up here to raise the uh, blacksmith shop here uh, behind our main shop, M&T, uh, we met... Uh, uh, Louis, a friend Louis from France, and he 
uh, introduced us then uh, to, you know, down the road, his um, rabbit. His funky rabbit. His funky rabbit. So uh, I don't have a deep understanding of the way that the French Carpenter's (laughs) Apprentice system works or the system of passing down knowledge but the term rabbit is a very important one it's Mm -hmm. a one with a a great deal of history to it and so louis rabbit uh is joseph brahiz which means apprentice yeah his apprentice he basically runs for whatever louis wants right i guess (laughs) um but the other thing that's funny is louis remember what he's called he's a fox he's a fox yeah and you know don't tell anyone so (laughs) A fox is somebody who's not officially part of the guild, but has the guild knowledge. Yeah. He has the skills to do this work. So he's like a, a fox. Like he's a thief. Yeah, he he's the in knowledge. the hen house. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> in the hen house. Exactly. And so our friend is a fox. And so he introduced us to his funky rabbit. Yes. Joseph Brahees, who has written this article, um, which is, again, unlike anything that we've published, uh, it's he calls it walking with wood. Uh, this article was written in French and was translated by our friend Hank Silver, who's also uh, on the CSF project. He's an American timber framer. Mm-hmm. And so Joseph has written about his experience working with Louis and others in France and learning timber framing. But he writes in a way that is, uh, he, he's definitely a born poet. Yeah, it's right? poetry. And so we've we've actually left parts of the more poetic sections of it paralleling the French and the English just because they they stand together very well. And you can read the, the French poetry and the English translations. But then the way he talks about using these tools and getting to learn these tools and they become a part of your arm and a part of your body and the the really physical nature of the work the sounds the tool makes the Mm -hmm. smell of the the vinegar tang of freshly hewn oak is really awesome it's so much fun to read you really feel like you're there uh working alongside joseph and and uh hearing this work go on and experiencing it for the first time and uh so he also draws on some uh, few different philosophers and he's all the way from like jack kerouac to uh you know he goes uh, a few others well ivan illich yeah he has he uh, references ivan illich which i was excited about because i love uh, illich's work um but then he also introduced me to um an anthropologist um named tim ingold and um i'm actually working my way through his book right now um and he's been very insightful uh, and very helpful to me thinking through, you know, the work of our hands, what we're, yeah. how we're making things and how that relates to uh, being a human, uh, things that anthropologists think about, you know? Right. Um, so, uh, Joseph was pulling on Ingold talking about, um, the same idea that our tools influence us and technology is a development of what he uses the, the word externalization that mm. you're, you know, I'm, I'm saying outsourcing, it's taking this technology and and depending on something else to guarantee the outcome or to be able to power the cut or whatever you're you're looking outside to be able to facilitate the work that's the development of technology um and so you know joseph is standing in front of this oak log with a you know with an axe and saying okay louis what do i do yeah 
<laughs> yeah, and and he's applying and that in this like really, uh, really powerful way yeah. as he's learning. You know, some there's some basic human stuff to working stuff with tools, and uh, that article is just really fun to come together. And so uh, Joseph and Luik, I gather, work together on the photography. They mm. have an eye for the dramatic. There's <laughs> there are some cool photos in there. Yeah, I must say. Yeah, it is gorgeous yeah. really gorgeous um yeah that's super special the other thing uh, we don't typically uh talk on the podcast about the examination articles but i i think this that's one's true yeah this one's pretty cool um it's a william and mary gateleg table that we've dated uh we think it's probably between 1715 to 1740 somewhere in there and that's based on construction and stylistic features um, it's not a high style piece, um, but it is a really great typical example of this period of table. Um, and uh, we didn't mention it in the article, but Mike, do you want to tell the backstory? Where hey, this... <laughs> yeah. So this this table actually lives in our house, and uh, my son uses it every day to work on his schoolwork. But we were um, wandering through this local. Uh, antique place it's this awesome location which i will not name but uh it's super cool yeah. and there's so many different stalls and we just wander and and i saw this uh tabletop that was just coated in this ugly super high gloss polyurethane and i was like oh that's pretty i almost i mean it's like you know the mirror finish stuff don williams calls it polyurinate polyurinate yeah it was full-on polyurinate <laughs> all over that and so I, I, you know, almost passed it by for that, but I, I saw some interesting color there and I, I bent down and looked at it and I looked underneath and I said, oh, wow, uh, this is actually really old. Um, and they had, oh, I forget what the price tag was. I think that stall had a 20% off Yeah, it was low. Tag it was and, and it was, you know, it was like, a, like 60 bucks or something <laughs> for this table, 60 or 80 bucks. <laughs> Gotta love main antique stores. Yeah. It's like, and so, yeah. uh. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this and, and brought it home. And uh, it's it's in regular use to this day. Uh, took care of the, the glossy polyurethane a yep. little bit. But um, it is really cool because you can see looking at this table how regular use affects a piece of furniture over 300 years. Yep. There are different things that have been swapped out or you know upgraded or fixed, repaired. There are some aspects of it just like in any piece of furniture we look at and go what the heck is that i have no idea what that's doing there yeah. what those what, weird holes yeah in the rails yeah what, what are those for and we can't uh never seen that before can't figure it out we but, always think so was that a mistake during construction right did did they lay it out here and then go oh wait not this side and flip it like wow right it's an unused never been used whole board yeah, you just think, what is yeah. that? Yeah, what it's what weird. was the thought process there? And oftentimes you can figure things out eventually, but uh, not that one, not yet. Not that one. one. One of these nights I'll wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, Eureka, <laughs> figured it out. <laughs> but um, this table's it's really neat. It's cool to consider, you know, what goes on at a table. It's, you know, mm -hmm. the central place of conversation and sharing meals and and writing letters and all this stuff and this table has been around for 
you know, maybe over 300 years and, uh, it's still, still recording those things. Yeah. It reminds me of your, uh, your scribes of nature article that you wrote, uh, and talking about how every exhale breath is captured in, in In the the grain, the grain of the tree. And so every table has all of this information embedded into the, yeah. the grain, but we don't know how to read it or translate it into anything intelligible to us. But you know, you describe them as these boards as scribes of nature that they're recording everything in, right. in human history as they're growing. And as we have these wooden objects all around us, we can't read the language, but there it is. Yeah, that is it's there, and we're looking know, at it. Two hundred years it. of conversations and arguments and yeah whatever tears and you know celebrations all embedded in that wood grain is just really a fascinating article that you wrote but it just makes me think about with this issue you know this this piece this gate leg table um 300 years 300 years of of things happening and and meals served and right uh your son's uh, schoolwork happening right yep. on top of it and it's just a it's a rich meaningful thing um that's why we love old furniture because of yeah. the stories involved and it, it just points to life you know yeah. um from every aspect in use and in construction there's just life to it uh and so i would lead that into uh an article that we're both super psyched about right and which one are you beyond thinking? life uh john ruskin oh yeah yeah who has not heard of john ruskin very few people the yeah. bbc uh in recent years has suggested that he might have been the most important man to live in the last 200 years uh which is saying something because i'm pretty sure there have been a lot of people <laughs> alive in that time uh but basically you know based on his influence uh for different people um over the years beyond uh you know gandhi and architects like frank lloyd wright and authors proust and tolstoy Tolstoy, and and, uh the bronte sisters and and all these other people who were so deeply influenced gk chesterton you know oscar wilde all uh, these people and then the arts and crafts movement yeah the entire movement (laughs) um so you know he thought very deeply about things and uh among the the subjects he thought deeply about are the are things that really resonate with us like liveliness in a created object Mm -hmm. like rough edges so this article is uh the title is taken from uh one of his essays in the stones of venice it's called savageness and uh we're we're just taking ruskin and putting him out there and saying this guy doesn't hold back yeah oh yeah it's it's pretty blunt (laughs) yeah ruskin got to a point where he and i think we both found a lot of people who make a big difference in their time they don't mince words yeah you know they 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 are not looking to filter what they're saying necessarily and ruskin was like that yeah uh he spoke with with force and this article is really great who is that one line so the sandpaper uh, there's, there's never say there's any reason to be proud of anything. Yeah, that can't ma- be can't be accomplished with time and sandpaper. That that is accomplished. That is accomplished. That is with a, time and accomplished sandpaper. with patience and sandpaper. Yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> <whew>. <laughs> Them's fighting words. Goodness, 
Um, he says quite a few things that could be called fighting words. Yeah. But he did, I mean, in his era, he got people up and fighting, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a good way for a lot of things. Yeah. You know, s- some of the stuff that he talked about for workers' rights and things like that made tremendous differences in a tremendous difference in his day which is part of what the arts and crafts movement was focused exactly on. yeah it was the dignity of craftsmanship and the dig- dignity of work and people and um trying to highlight that and then uh, along with that came um celebrating the natural materials themselves um highlighting the wood grain and not obscuring it with paint that was sort of taboo yeah. um so that's so so um so close to the mission of mnt to cultivate reverence for the dignity of humanity and the natural world mm. through handcraft. Yeah. I mean, that's basically that's, that's, like, that, that's life. the arts and crafts yeah. movement, <laughs> basically. Um, so it really made sense to republish um, a, a piece of Ruskin and share some of his thinking because it was uh, it's challenging. It is it is uh, pointed, yeah. but really, really uh, in, inspiring work. So. We thought it'd be important to get him out there, and it's a totally crazy, fresh take on it too, and uh, presentation of it. Yeah, we have a bunch of vivid photography and crazy gargoyles being carved. Yeah, by gargoyles. Medieval. There is a total rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, so I we couldn't even believe some of these things that we were discovering <laughs> about gargoyles. Yeah, gargoyles. So um, the presentation, obviously, and if you buy an old Ruskin book, um, it's going to be a some of them have illustrations along with them, but a lot of them don't. It's just text. And we presented it in a pretty bold, yep. dramatic way. Yeah, including um, that so. the photo that we've just secured the rights to this morning and put in. It is a a bold piece of medieval furniture, Yeah, I'll say. We'll say. It, it is savage. <laughs> it is intense. <laughs> really you'll, intense. You'll love it. So, yeah. Uh, we're really excited about this issue and the way it's come together. Um, and it's going to the printer in a few days. Um, on, on Monday morning, it's it's going to the printer. So for those of you subscribing, uh, you will see that in your mailboxes. Um, and we love to hear emails from you all or comments on the blog to hear, you know, what do you think about this new issue? What was yeah. what was meaningful and helpful to you? Um, yeah, we, we love to hear from people. And we, we aim to, to respond to everyone who reaches out and writes. Um, so yeah, comment on the blog, send us an email at info at mortisantenomag.com. And, uh, yeah, let's just keep in touch. Uh, we're, we're loving all the interaction with our, our listeners and our readers lately. So, uh, on that note, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as I said, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks.